0: If I haven't met you before, huge, huge welcome. My name's Emma. I'm part of the team here at KXC, and it is a total joy, as always, to come and speak to you guys today. And before we kick off, let's just pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. And we just choose in this moment to open our hearts afresh. Lord, come and feed us from your word. And I just pray that you'd, yeah, take my words right now, God, and use them for your glory. Amen. Amen. So over the past few weeks, we've been in this teaching series called Name Above All Names, basically just looking at the different names of God in the Old Testament. And the reason that's key is because in the time of the Old Testament, names just aren't arbitrary. Like when it came to naming their kids, like Hebrew parents, they're not just scrolling through a list of names, trying to find the most edgy ones or the ones that, you know, like would be acceptable in the school playground. They are intrinsic to who people are. They're connected to who a person is. It's why there are several instances in the Old Testament of kind of a transformation happening in a person and then being renamed. It's almost like your name no longer fits who you are. So when God reveals his name to the people of Israel, it's so much more than him just sharing a title. He's revealing something of his very nature, like the core of who he is. And we find this moment in Exodus 3, the first time that God reveals his name. And um, he's revealing it to Moses. And Moses has been called by God to set the Israelites free uh, from Pharaoh. And Moses, kind of understandably, is having a bit of a crisis of confidence. Um, And he's basically saying to God, like, I have nothing to offer. Like, I stutter. I'm inadequate. Like, who am I that I should go And God's response in that moment isn't to shower Moses with compliments. He's not just like, you're great, don't worry about it. Neither is it to give him a pep talk, like, you've got this, Moses, we can do this. He says, like, Moses, you're asking the wrong question. Like, the question isn't, who are you, Moses? The question is, who am I? And God, in that moment, he reveals his name. He says, I am Yahweh, which literally translated means, I am who I am. And this name, Yahweh, became the most precious name to the people of Israel. They wouldn't even write it down in case it became defaced. Like the God of the universe, the creator of absolutely everything, he wanted to be on first name basis with them. And you know, all of us ask that question, don't we, of like, who am I? Like, am I enough? We kind of love to go on these journeys of um, discovering more about ourselves. Like we love like the Enneagram or like personality tests. Like I'm sure many of us has found ourselves kind of down a rabbit warren on the internet late at night doing some random quiz about our personality with some incredibly questionable psychology behind it. But we love to define ourselves by it right. Emma Salton's laughing too much at that. She's like, yeah, I'm there. (laughs) Like we love to define ourselves by it right. We're like, I'm so sorry. I couldn't possibly work in this environment moment because it's just not conducive to my Enneagram state. Or, yeah, I know I'm, I'm probably being actually completely unreasonable right now, but you know what? I'm a type two and this is just who I am. And obviously I'm making light of it, but in all of those, there is this deeper, deeper question of who am I? And at times it can be painful, right? Like we're told to place our identity in so many different things and attempt to discover the answer But it's a question that has existed in every single generation because it's one of humanity's oldest and deepest questions. And the only way to answer it, the only way to discover who you are is to discover who God is. Like it's how we were designed, right? Like the created for the creator. Like our lives do not make sense apart from him. We're made. We're made in the image, the likeness of God, and so our identity it's formed and it's shaped from His being and His action towards us. So as you travel through the pages of the Old Testament, you start seeing these compound names of God appear, and in these moments, like God is revealing more of His nature, of His very being to the people of Israel. So there's compound names like kind of Yahweh Shema, which is the Lord is there. In other words, like the very character of God is to be present to His people. So what does that mean about us? What does that say about our being? It means that we are never, ever alone. There's so many more that we've gone through, but tonight um, we are looking at another compound name of God, Yahweh Nkadesh, which I've been practicing, guys, I've been practicing. Um, And this means Yahweh who sanctifies or Yahweh who makes holy. And this name appears a few times in the Old Testament, but we're going to kind of root ourselves in a passage in Leviticus. You'll be pleased to hear Um, Leviticus 20, verses 7 to 8. Um, And it's really short, so I'm just going to read it to us. It says this Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And just to give a bit of context, Leviticus is is an interesting book, um, is what I would say. Lots of laws around kind of ritual purity, um, kind of some sacrifices in there, what to eat, what not to eat. Um, I think it probably is the book that scuppered the most attempts to read the Bible in a year. Like you kind of hit it around kind of mid-February time. And after reading a few days of kind of mildew regulations, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm out. I'm out of this. um, And you kind of give up. So without context, this book is pretty strange and quite hard to read. But what you need to know is basically the central question for Leviticus. The central question it's trying to answer is how can a holy God reside with his people? Like it's not a question of how can they earn God's love, right? God's already chosen them. He's already entered into a covenant relationship with them. He's rescued them from Egypt. He's brought them into the desert in order for them to get to the promised land. They have been delivered. The question isn't how can the Israelites earn God's favor, It's how can God's presence, his holy, holy presence, dwell among the people who in different ways have embraced death. And so the book of Leviticus is instructions to the Jewish people about how to consecrate themselves to God. And so I don't know how you feel when you hear this word holy or holiness. Um, I don't know what your reaction is when I said that this is what we're looking at tonight. Because I think for many people, I think there's a fear around holiness Kind of at best, it's seen as boring, like this, this journey into the beige, like living a holy life means going to bed at a reasonable hour. It's basically signing yourself up to a life of absolute dullness. And at its worst, I think the people think that um, holiness is about control. I think um, when you hear that word, you're like, oh my goodness, no, we're becoming a church like that. Or we're becoming, oh my goodness, really legalistic. For others, I think it invokes shame. Um, or anger, like people are just hypocrites who say they 're holy, and I don 't think church cultures helped. I think actually, in fact, at times it 's been really damaging. I just think of um, the kind of purity culture I um, grew up in at church. It was, it was harmful. And we live in a society right that deems holiness as evil. Like the greatest sin, according to our culture, is to still believe in sin. And the narrative that society um, so often believes is that what people need saving from is the idea they need saving at all. And it's all of this baggage that we're kind of bringing in the room tonight when we talk about holiness. But I think this word is just too important a word to abandon. And so tonight I want to look together at kind of what this word holy really means. And hopefully, fingers crossed, um, repaint a picture of what holiness can look like. And far from it being a journey into the beige, like walking in holiness is to live a life of adventure for Jesus. I'm actually really excited to talk about this topic. Um, It's actually one of my biggest passions because holiness takes ground for the kingdom of God. Like it pushes back darkness. Living a holy life is what it means to be most fully alive. As I kind of said at the start, one of the the reasons that we're looking at the name of God is because um, who God is speaks not only to kind of how we should act, but who we are. And the framework we've been using for this um, is that God's being... um, which is kind of God's nature, it affects his doing, kind of his actions towards the world, which then affects our being, God's actions towards us, which shapes kind of our identity and then how we therefore act. And so tonight, we're just going to move through this framework, move through these four points um, just to kind of unpack more of what this means. So what does it mean that God is holy? What does holiness even look like? So the word in Hebrew, it's kadesh, I think, Um, and in Greek, it's hagios, Um, and it basically doesn't mean morally upright. Like the literal meaning of the word is to be set apart, to be different. So it's why in Leviticus, you can have holy pots and pans. Like it's not that they're just kind of morally upright amongst all the pots and pans. It's that they've been set apart. They've been consecrated for special use. And we're told again and again in the scriptures that God's being is holy. Our God is a holy God. It's the very core of who he is. He is pure life itself. And another way to describe God as holy is wholeness. Like God is lacking nothing. Um, And it's kind of a hard concept to grasp, but the most helpful image I've come across with this is to think about the sun, Um, as in the the star in the sky, um, not the newspaper, definitely not the newspaper. Um, The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. So the source of all this beautiful life on Earth is because of the sun. You wouldn't say that the sun is lacking darkness, it's just pure light. And The closer you get to the sun, like the more intense it gets, the more that darkness is eaten up. But the very power, the very goodness of that life is also dangerous. Like the sun, if you get too close to it, it's going to annihilate you. And in the same kind of way, there's almost this paradox at the heart of God's holiness. Like God is life. He is pure. He is light. And so death and sin and darkness just cannot exist in its presence. Like you cannot exist together, the oil and water. But there's a problem here because humanity chose to walk away from God. And in doing so, in walking away from God, the source of all life, they inevitably embraced death. Like we became slaves to sin and death. So God and humanity like split apart, divided. God's heart was to dwell with his people, but he couldn't be with them because they'd chosen death. And this is the story of the Bible. Like if you've ever wondered what on earth is this book about, it's about a holy God on a rescue mission to be reunited with his kids, so throughout the Old Testament, the meeting point between heaven and earth, the place where God's presence is manifest is in the temple, It's confined to this place in the Holy of Holies, adequately named. Um, and in order to come into the temple, like, you needed to be ritually pure. Um, and ritual purity um, was a state where you separ- separated yourself from anything to do with death. So there were things like skin diseases or um, kind of being around dead bodies, um, certain bodily fluids, lovely, um, you know, not very nice. All of these things, they weren't necessarily sinful, but in some way they related to death. And so before entering the place where God's presence dwelt, you had to be free of this, set apart and consecrated. And the central point of the book of Leviticus, like the high point, if you like, is in the middle and it's the day of atonement. And this, in the Jewish calendar, is the holiest of the holy days, because it's when the sins of the people are atoned for. And it involves goats, it involves blood and some sacrifice. Um, Yeah, I I read it, it's interesting. Um, But basically, we won't go into it now, but the key thing to know about this is that the sins of the people um, are placed on this goat and it is sacrificed. And when the Jewish people celebrate the Day of Atonement, at the kind of climactic moment of this celebration, they recite the Shema, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. In other words, like, you, got a one, and because of this sacrifice, we can now be one with you again. Like, we are made clean, our sin has been paid for, there is no separation between us, we are one with you. And as we read through the journey of the Bible, we see that God's heart, his deepest desire is to see um, an end to sin, death and darkness once and for all. Like he wants to permanently dwell with his people. And this is what Jesus came to do. This is the meal that we've just celebrated. Jesus became that sacrifice. He led a holy, a sinless life. He set himself apart for us. So if God's being is holy what is his action towards us it's one of wholehearted devotion like for God so loved the world that he gave his only son he paid the ultimate price so that whoever believes in him their sins are forgiven they are made clean and I I don't know where you're at today I don't know how you're feeling right now um, but just as I was writing this talk, I just wondered if there was even just one or two people in the room tonight, but you needed to know that God is a God who will break down every single barrier to reach you, that like no matter how hopeless it seems right now, no matter how lost you feel, no matter how unclean you are, whether because of you know things you've done, anything you've experienced, no matter how far from home you feel, God longs to meet you in this place with his love. So how does God's wholehearted devotion to us, how does it shape our being? Well, it means that for those in Christ, we are made holy. We're made whole. Hebrews 10, verse 10, it puts it like this. It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Not because of what we've done, and that's key. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is, Yahweh M Kadesh. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 1. He says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Without blemish, free from accusation. You know, we talk a lot about um, how to deal with shame in our culture. And loads of the tools are really, really helpful. I've personally found some of them amazing. But so often the answer that is given is to try and manage shame, like through kind of good self-talk and mantras. um, And as helpful as some of those tools are, they often don't get to the root problem. Like they don't have the power to transform us, to actually deal with the problem of sin. But God's invitation to us, it isn't um, just to ignore them, just to push them down and pretend they don't exist. Neither do we have a God who condemns us. We have a God who says, come to me, heap it upon my shoulders. Let me take your shame, your guilt, your sin. Let me take it to the cross. I will suffer and die so that you might be transformed. Like, Can you imagine what our church might look like if we knew in the very depths of who we are that we are clean? that we are free, that we are without blemish. Like this is what Christ came to do. And everyone who said yes to Jesus, like this is who we are in Christ. Paul says it like this, like we're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But at this point, let's name the tension right. Because I don't know about you, um, but I am acutely aware that I don't always feel like I'm clean, that I'm living this out perfectly, that I'm living out who I'm called to be. Like I mess up. um, I sin. I struggle with selfishness, with pride. I'm I'm not going to carry on the list. Um, You get the picture. I mess up. But this is what the journey into holiness is all about, It's learning to live out this new identity. It's about working with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to transform us piece by piece to become more like Christ. And it is a lifelong journey. It's the transformation of our character, of our minds, of our hearts, of our inner world into who we were made to be. And the way we cooperate with that, the way that we partner with the Spirit in the work of transformation is to pursue holiness. So what does all of that mean? How do we do that? How do we live lives where our hearts and minds and actions are becoming more like Christ? Um, And it's just worth here saying, we could easily do a whole sermon series on just this point. Like there is so much to say about pursuing holiness. Um, But for the sake of time, you'll be pleased to know. um, I just want to look at one of the first steps on the journey. So just going back to our framework, um, if um, if God's holiness led to his wholehearted devotion to us, then we are called as God's holy people to be wholehearted in our devotion to him, to orientate our whole lives, our hearts, our thoughts, our actions around Jesus, to make him Lord. If we just look at the Ten Commandments for a moment, like they were given to the Israelites in order to show how to live in the land and flourish. But kind of before you have the do not murders, do not steal, do not commit adultery, right at the top are three commandments all about what it means to worship God. So in other words, like what we worship is crucial to how we live. If we want our actions to be holy, it matters who or what we're devoted to. Like what we place in that top spot, what we place as Lord of our lives is who we will become. And it sounds simple enough, right? If I was to ask you, like, do you worship God? It's probably like, yeah, come to church on a Sunday. Sometimes put my hands in the air if I'm feeling energetic. Um, But, you know, that isn't the question. Like, if you're actually honest with yourself, like, is God at the top spot in your life? Like, just think about it for a moment. When you daydream, where does your mind go to? What's the thing that if God actually asked you to give that up, you would really struggle? You know, it's so easy to look like we're doing all the right things when it comes to the Christian life, to say the right stuff, um, to go to the right events, and even to be well-meaning in it, but to not have a life orientated around Jesus, to still be the one in, your, in control of your life, is so easy to do. This guy at Jathani, he is an author and he uh, wrote a book around some of this stuff Uh, and he kind of confesses in this little quote I'm going to share about how he kind of really finds the Christian life. And he says this, he says, My secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than a messy relationship with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events, rather than the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God, a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. And when I just heard that, like it hit me, because I don't know about you, but I can so relate to that. Like I want to be in control of my life, but the call to holiness is a call to surrender it all to Jesus, to be set apart for him. Um, Charles Taylor, he's um, a philosopher. He worked at Oxford University for many years, um, kind of a philosopher, social commentator, and he wrote a lot about the secular age and trying to articulate what's going on in our time. And he writes about this shift that he has observed um, taking place over the Western world in the past 50 years or so. And he kind of is is this shift that he calls from a culture of authority, so where your kind of moral and spiritual authority is external. So it's kind of either located in tradition, parents, God, government. And he says, actually, what's happened over the past 50 years is a shift to what he now calls a culture of authenticity, which we're living in now. And here he says that culture's plumb line for what is right and wrong is internal. It's located in yourself. Like you are the authority. And any form of external authority is deemed as controlling or harmful. Now, don't get me wrong here. Like I'm all for calling out and overturning legalistic, evil forms of external authority, like yes and amen. And these forms, unfortunately, have existed in the church as well as in culture. I'm all for calling those out. But God is not evil. His authority is not evil. His way is not evil. In fact, he is the total opposite. More than anyone else, he is the one who wants the best for you. He wants you to be most fully alive. My, my point isn't to say we need to go back to this culture 50 years ago at all. My point's to highlight the culture that we're now swimming in. Like why pursuing holiness in our time is actually radical and it's really hard not simply because of the choices that we make, not simply because of our actions, but because to truly live a holy life means to lay down your autonomy, to lay down the right to control our lives and hand it all over to Jesus. Like it's a challenge, it's a direct challenge to the idol of our generation, the idol of self. To pursue holiness is to choose to orientate our entire life around another. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Um, Imagine almost like two hills. One is captivity to sin. Not, Not a fun hill, you don't want to be on that one. And the other is like total surrender to Jesus. And I think for a lot of us, it's almost like we've got enough faith to be saved from sin, but we don't have quite enough surrender to let Jesus have our whole life. So we're kind of stuck in this miserable no man's land in the middle. Like sin isn't enjoyable anymore, we're dead to it, but we're not wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. We're not pursuing holiness. And in this like no man's land, there are still other idols that lay claim to our lives. And I don't know if you can relate to that at all. I think for me, um, I very much sometimes relate to wandering in that no man's land. And especially when I was a teenager, um, I became a Christian at a really young age, um, free from sin, came down the hill, it was great. Um, And I, I loved Jesus, genuinely loved Jesus. But if I'm honest, his voice was definitely not the loudest in my life. Like he really wasn't Lord of my life in every area. I was kind of in this no man's land where I lived with other idols in my heart. And for me, um, the big idol, just being honest, was probably a success. Um, and in different ways, obviously, um, kind of, yeah, through school, through different things I was doing at church. But I wanted to be successful. I wanted to just nail it and get it, get it right, look good. And in different ways, um, kind of worshiping that idol resulted in me believing that my worth was intrinsically linked to how well I performed. And ironically, this was probably most at work, actually, in the church. Um, And it all started to unravel when I was kind of 17 or so. Um, And I was really involved with this youth group. Um, And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we'd almost seen like a mini revival. Like, we'd seen loads of teenagers become a Christian, become Christians. They kind of joined the youth group. There was probably around 60 or 70 of us. Um, And then my youth pastor, for various reasons, suddenly stepped back. And we were told by the church in that moment that they weren't going to employ anyone for another year. And I was absolutely livid. Like I had worked so hard, I'd poured so much energy and effort into this youth group. There was momentum, there was things happening, like God was on the move. And then it was like nothing. Like the church, they're just abandoning us. And that's what it felt like to me at the time. And so I thought, fine, well, we don't need you anyway. (laughs) So um, me and a friend and a couple of others, we were like, we're just going to run this by ourselves. Um, And understandably, as a 17-year-old, I was totally out of my depth. Um, But I poured myself into it. I was like, I can do this. But by the end of the year, like, numbers had totally dwindled. Like, all of the momentum that we had just totally stopped. We were left with probably seven or eight young people who actually had to be there because their parents were in church. Um, and I was just totally devastated. Like, I felt like I totally failed. And it knocked me completely like, because my worth was linked to whether I exceeded. And it totally shattered my confidence, my ability to lead, to do anything. Um, and fast forward a few years or so, um, kind of towards the end of university, still really fragile um, from this experience of the past few years, and I was just finding myself in another environment where success was an idol, where success was everything, and it just it broke me. I just hit anxiety; and my mental health took an absolute nosedive. Um, I was not in a good place at all. I was having panic attacks. Um, I couldn't sit in lectures, but I was just desperately trying to power on, to power through. And I remember one morning, just kind of finally, just snapping. Um, And in that moment, I just like cried out to God, like, "God, where are you?" And in that moment, I realized, like, I had a choice. It was like this light bulb moment. Like, I could continue on how I was, like, desperately trying to hold myself together, like, powering through, relying on myself, or I could finally give in and reach out to God, surrender to Him, invite Him in. And I, I chose the latter, thankfully. Um, And so all I did each morning is I just sit in a chair and I just say, like, God, here I am. I surrender. Some mornings I couldn't even say that. But you know what happened? Like, he met me there. Not in a dramatic way. There wasn't a booming voice from heaven or thunderbolts and lightning. But he just drew close to me. Like, I felt his presence. And I'm sure some of you would have heard me say that before. But I say it because probably for me it's the defining moment of my life. Like, in my weakest moment, when I was anxiety ridden, had completely failed, couldn't offer him anything, he met me with his love. He would just say over me, like, I'm, you're my daughter, you know, who I love, with you, I am well pleased. And for me, that's the moment I gave up my autonomy, like I fully surrendered and I said, like, Jesus, come, be the Lord of my life. Um, and this really, for me, was the start of kind of my journey into kind of holiness and what that is. All of a sudden, it became less about moral tick boxes and more like, Jesus, how does my life become worship to you? Like, how do I honor you with my body, with my thoughts, with my actions? Like, suddenly, I just realized that God didn't just want me not to do certain things. He loved me and he wanted me to walk in ways that would bring life. And, you know, following him with my whole life is it's costly. Like, pursuing holiness is hard. Um, at university, like, sitting with my mates while everyone's getting absolutely hammered, like, being constantly asked, why aren't you doing this? Or in singleness, like, choosing to pursue holiness in that area of my life is difficult. And of course, I get it wrong all the time. You know, it's not always motivated by overwhelming, like, gushy feelings of love for Jesus. It is a daily choice to surrender. But you know what? Like, it is so worth it. Because, whilst it's costly, like intimacy with Jesus has led me to greater joy, greater peace, greater freedom than I ever could have imagined. And more than that, as we start to do this, as we orientate our whole lives around Him, follow His commands, God is able to work through us in deeper ways to bring the life of His kingdom to earth. So, what does it mean for you today? Like, what does this look like in your life? What does it mean to be set apart for God as you head to work on Monday morning or as you kind of hang out with your flatmates at uni? Like, for some of you, there might be one thing that instantly comes to mind, one area of your life that you know Jesus isn't Lord in. And as I said, we could do a whole sermon series on what it means to actually follow Jesus in those areas. But for tonight, for all of us, I think that first step to pursuing holiness is starting with repentance, Like to repent of the other idols that we have placed as Lord. To surrender wholeheartedly again to him. Like it is the good news of the gospel that we get to come before God and ask for his forgiveness. Ask for him to make us clean. Like Lord, purify my heart. Like I can't do this by myself, but you are Yahweh Emkadesh. Like you are the Lord who makes holy, so give me an undivided heart towards you. And you know what? God can do the most extraordinary thing with just a few people who cry out in repentance to him, who are set apart. And just as I come into land, um, I just want to share a story about a bunch of people who did just that. Um, And some of you will know it's the story of the Hebridean revival. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, the Outer Hebrides, it's a collection of small islands at the top of Scotland. Um, I just had a real overwhelming urge to, um, to a Scottish accent then. I'm not going to do it, thank goodness. Um, but between 1949 to 1953, like the majority of the population gave their lives to Christ. Like, let that just sink in for the moment. The majority of the population of those islands gave their lives to Christ. Um, once empty churches totally filled with young people like god's presence moving across the island like the island the landscape of that place changed forever and the story it all starts with two absolute hero women christine and peggy smith and um, they're a couple of elderly sisters One's bent double with arthritis the other is nearly blind and um, but they felt this burden to pray for young people So they kind of summon, as only old people could do, like they summon the local minister. They're like, come here. And the elders, they kind of got together and they basically devised this plan to pray. And they were doing these prayer meetings day after day, like night after night. But they hadn't seen any breakthrough for months. Um, They're just like, what is happening? And one day, one night, after many, many months of praying, one of the elders stood up and he just reads Psalm 24 to the room. And this is what it says. It says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And then he addressed the congregation. And he said this. He said, Brethren, it is just so much humbug to be waiting night after night, month after month, if we ourselves are not right with God. Like, I must ask myself, is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? And in that moment, the fear of the Lord just fell among the gathered few. The power of God swept across the community. Just a handful of ordinary men and women, like people in this room, repenting of where Jesus wasn't Lord of their lives, setting themselves apart for him. It kick-started a revival that would change the whole course of the Hebrides. You know, after that prayer meeting, the presence of God, it moved across the island. You'd have workers in the field during the day, dropping to their knees in the dirt, crying out for repentance of sin. Like other moments where mothers woke up in the middle of the night, convicted by the state of their souls, and they'd run to a church to try and get right with God. One night at the end of the prayer meeting, like they opened the doors and they found 600 people from the local community, just houses around the corner, desperate to find out who God was. Like desperate, just 600 people. Can you imagine 600 people just outside the Ethiopian church suddenly wanting to get right with Jesus? Among the crowds were 100 young people who just left a local dance. Like all of a sudden, they just felt convicted of their need for salvation. Men and women had already gone to bed. They got up, they dressed and they found themselves at the church asking how can I be saved? Like, hundreds at night giving their lives to Jesus. A whole community totally transformed. People set free, healed, delivered. Why? Because a bunch of people chose holiness. Like, what might London look like? What might your uni halls look like? What might people down your street experience? If you said to God, like, I'm all in. Like, forgive me, Lord, where I haven't pursued you. Give me clean hands and a pure heart. Help me to walk in holiness. Like God is looking for men and women who he can use to bring his kingdom to earth, to push back darkness. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to give all of who you are in wholehearted devotion to him? Are you willing to repent of the ways you're not pursuing God? And trust me, um, that will be a daily thing if it's anything like me. You will daily be repenting of those ways. But as we do that, as we learn to walk this stuff out, surrendering more and more of ourselves to him, not only will you experience the fullness of his kingdom, like he will use you to do the impossible, to do the miraculous, to tear down injustice, to set captives free. To pursue wholeness is to pursue that kind of life. And this city is crying out for a church that is walking in the fullness of that.